Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. Today we're going to be talking about the future of the law and law enforcement. And we have a special guest with us to figure it all out. Is it Judge Dredd? It's Judge Sarus Faravar. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I don't think I subscribed to that podcast yet. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be pretty good, Judge Sarus. Um, Sarus works at NBC News as a reporter covering tech and policy, and he's also the author of an amazing book that you should check out called Hobbyist Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. And he and I were colleagues at Ars Technica, where we spent a lot of time talking about mostly Star Trek, yeah. but also technology. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be talking about today how the law is becoming more futuristic, especially around surveillance and also some Star Trek. now we're in a phase where the law and law enforcement are getting to be more futuristic, at least in sort of the cyberpunk sense of futurism. We're seeing a lot more surveillance being used. We're seeing a lot of new devices being deployed in the law. And there's a lot of ways that the law is trying to regulate technology. There's things like autonomous cars and robots and drug patents. There's AI. There's reproductive technology. So there's a lot of ways that we could slice this. But what we want to talk about today is specifically how surveillance technology is working its way into the law. And we actually, in San Francisco, where we're recording this, we just had a victory for privacy rights. Our board of supervisors decided to outlaw facial recognition technologies in San Francisco. Sarus, can you tell us more about that? Sure, yeah. The bill that you're talking about passed, it's called a first reading on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. By a vote of eight to one, it passed saying that the city agencies, which most often means the police, but could be other city agencies as well, can't use facial recognition technology and also has to be much more transparent in terms of how they obtain and describe the surveillance technology generally that they use. But one of the main provisions, as you say, uh, was this outright ban on the use of facial recognition technology. And it's the first city in the country to do this. Um, the city of Oakland, the city of Somerville, Massachusetts are probably not far behind, and maybe others as well that I don't even know about. But I think we're now at a really interesting moment where facial recognition technology is getting really good. There's been a lot of coverage in the media lately that you guys probably have seen, especially in places like Western China, where it's being used to oppress people. And I think there's a lot of concern that this technology that, you know, maybe is flawed in how often it's used could be used in not so great ways. So that's the decision that the San Francisco government has made for right now. And here's a, a clip of one of our supervisors, Aaron Peskin, talking about why they made this decision. It's not ready for prime time, but even if it is ready for prime time, I think this is a genie that we want to put back in the bottle. Why do you think that, that San Francisco, but also potentially other cities, are drawing the line at facial recognition? I mean, we already have a ton of other surveillance that's being used all the time by law enforcement. We have things like 
recognizing license plates, for example, which can kind of lead to following someone around in their car without ever getting a court order. Right. Why do you think facial recognition is kind of this flashpoint for people? I think facial recognition is one of those things that we've seen depicted in science fiction, whether literature or TV shows or, or movies, where being able to recognize somebody's face is something that's very personal to, to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, people do things yeah. to change their face in small ways, piercings, facial hair, dye their hair, whatever. But for the most part, faces are very intimate and more or less constant, right? Our faces change over time, certainly, but at a very slow rate. Obviously, it's as we've seen in the Nick Cage documentary, Face Off, uh, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to change your face. Uh-huh. And so, you know, you talk about like, compared to other types of surveillance technology, it's something that I think for many people is troubling and is a way to think about, well, okay, like I know that the police officer can ask me for my ID, but you know, we know that fake IDs exist and we know that there are ways to kind of evade that. It's hard to try to figure out how you might resist or evade being recognized as a person, right? When you're out in a crowd, whether you're at a political protest, whether you're at a strip club, whether you're at a marijuana dispensary, right? Even if there's like surveillance cameras in that place, you probably have some reason to believe that you're probably not going to be noticed or identified specifically to you. But now that we're rapidly entering a world where that technology is getting really good really fast, that calculus is changing. So I think that San Francisco being a place that is mindful of those concerns or tries to be mindful of those concerns and also a place where, you know, this technology is being developed in our own backyard, I think wanted to send a message saying, hey, let's maybe put the brakes on this for a little bit. Isn't there also a concern that face recognition technology sometimes gets it wrong, especially with certain types of faces and certain, you know, ethnicities of faces, that you could get a false identification, which could be used to arrest somebody who was actually innocent? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And there have been many academic studies that have shown that the training data in particular for many, many facial recognition systems are not as accurate, particularly against women, particularly against people of color. And that's obviously problematic. You know, we don't have many specific instances so far of facial recognition being used at the local level for like police departments, but that's coming really, really soon, right? So where I live, just across the bay in Oakland, all Oakland patrol officers, I don't know if this is the case here, have to wear body cameras. The body camera market right now is dominated by a company called Axon, which used to be called Taser, that makes the Taser weapon that you're familiar with. Um, (laughs) The Axon company has said, and they have patents that explicitly say this, that they want to do more facial recognition into body cameras. So that's a technology that we know is coming. It has not yet, as far as I'm aware, been introduced on the streets of anywhere in America, but it does currently exist in airports and in many other instances. Even, you know, there are now stadiums that are using this just for the purposes of instead of having a ticket, right? You can just use your your Mm -hmm. face to, to get into the thing. This is coming right now, right? This is happening, you know, as we speak. And I think many of us don't realize how prevalent it already is. Um, We haven't yet seen it in the context of, as you were talking about, right, city law, local law enforcement. It seems to me absent regulation by cities like San Francisco saying you don't have it or you can have it, but under certain circumstances, it seems to me that it's almost inevitable. I know for your book, you've researched kind of the backstory on how surveillance devices have been regulated by the law. So what's kind of the deep backstory on this? Like, where does the idea come from that we can just say like, all right, we have a technology, but you can't use it? 
there's this strange distinction between searches and non-searches in the like legal parlance, right? So if you think about what the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution says, right, it protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures is the like key phrase. Unreasonable basically means anything that's not reasonable. What is reasonable then? Reasonable is, for example, a consent search. If I come to your house, if I'm a police officer and say, hey, Annalie, can I search your apartment? And you say, yes, you've consented to a search. So that's a reasonable search. We're okay with that. Another reasonable search would be if a judge signs off on a warrant saying, oh, we think, you know, Sarus is dealing drugs out of his house and we're going to find, you know, the drugs in his house and the judge has agreed to that, right? We call that process a warrant. And there and, has to have been some evidence. Yeah, and there, the there's like a process that. that goes yeah. forward. The judge can't unilaterally say, and the police can't unilaterally say, uh, we're going to search uh, your house or your car or whatever. So an unreasonable search is to prevent the police from doing exactly that, from just coming to kick down my door and saying, well, we heard somebody told us that you were selling drugs at your house and now we're just going to rifle through all your stuff, right? That's what the founders were concerned about. One of the things. <laughs> so then we get into questions like, well, what does the word search mean, right? I think we understand it when, you know, a bag is opened or a door is opened. But what does it mean when it's out on the street, right? What does it mean when the police, if they're looking at me and I'm riding my bike down down Market Street or whatever, can the police take note of me? Can they make a sketch of me? Can they take a picture of me? Can they take a video of me? Can they just mark the fact on a piece of paper or on a computer that I was there? All of those things are considered to be not searches. So the Fourth Amendment doesn't even enter in, into the equation, right? When you kind of escalate the levels of technology, and this is kind of what my book talks about in more detail, like what technologies are allowed or not. We're, I think, generally okay with police using their eyes to see things in the world. We're maybe okay with them using binoculars or some other, you know, eyeglasses or like something like that. There was a case that I write about in my book where the police used a device, it was called a FLIR, a forward-looking infrared. So they were peering through the walls of somebody's home to detect heat infrared heat coming off of a guy's grow lamp who was growing marijuana in his house. That's very oh. Batman, right? And, like, that's what Batman <laughs> I did. I guess so, yeah. yeah I guess I never thought about that. See, you guys are you guys have all this deep knowledge. Oh, yeah. Um, so in that case, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't peer through the walls of somebody's home without a warrant. That decision was, the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Scalia. So that was a case called Kylo, K-Y-L-L-O, up in Oregon, Was was uh, this happened. We get into these weird situations where it's not clear whether this or that technology is a search. Another case that I read about in the book that I often describe as being basically Breaking Bad in Minnesota in the 70s uh, <laughs> is a case called, so I assume everybody has like awesome handlebar mustaches, is a case called Knots versus United States, which basically involves some dudes making meth in Minnesota and they set up a meth lab in Wisconsin and they're driving from one place to another about 100 miles distance. And they have a barrel, like an oil drum sized barrel of chloroform that they've legally purchased. But unbeknownst to them, the police have placed a 1970s era technology, this happened in the 70s, what's described as a beeper, which is essentially a low range FM transmitter. So it's just giving off the signal of the location of the barrel. Mm -hmm. So that gets challenged. Ultimately, the Supreme Court says, that's fine. It's okay to do that because there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in public. They say, look, putting a beeper on this device that gives up the location of the barrel is just like putting 100 officers on the road. That if you put 100 officers on the road, nobody would have a problem with that. And so this is basically the same thing, was what the court wrote. Hmm. That court decision, which was issued in 1982, the year I was born, is what allows technology that we've had now for decades, which is license plate readers, right? Mm -hmm. Which is 
something that captures people's license plates you mentioned a moment ago as people drive down the street is very high speeds and i'm not aware of any court cases yet that have dealt with facial recognition specifically in this regard but it seems to me that if you buy the logic that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in public which means that plates can be captured it seems to me that it must also be true that people's faces can be captured by a device and kept as data by a law enforcement agency for maybe months or years on end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is concerning uh, for a lot of people who are worried uh, not only that it might misread or might falsely identify you as somebody or falsely associate you with somebody, but also that let's say you get falsely identified and then also there's a pattern of behavior that is wrong to what you actually do or how you actually behave. And then, you know, there could be interesting consequences. Presumably, if you do buy the idea that you have no privacy in public, then you can basically follow somebody using surveillance. You can, you know, say, all right, well, their face is here, here, here. I mean, in a sort of person of interest kind of way. Exactly. Which is exactly what they do all the time in that show. And it's not that far from reality. No, it's, it's really not. I've heard this from police officers say, well, look, license plate readers... We're not tracking you. It's not surveillance, they say, because mm-hmm. they're saying, look, we're taking a snapshot here and a snapshot three days later over there and a snapshot a week later over here. And that's not tracking. That's not like watching you all the time. But I think the counter argument to that is, well, given enough data points, it almost is. When I was at Ars Technica, you may remember I did a story about license plate readers in particular, where I obtained through a public records request from the city of Oakland, 4.6 million license plate reader records that they gave me over the course of five or six years. And I felt really creepy about it, kind of, you know, a, a creepy superpower where I could look up, I didn't have people's names, but I had plates, dates, times, and GPS locations. So I could see, for example, that this plate, typically in the you know morning commuting hours, has been scanned at this location, and in the evening hours is scanned at this location, and occasionally it's you know here, there, and everywhere. And even with a city city council member, I went to him and I asked him for his plate number, and I could see and I could accurately guess where he lived because you know if you drive a car, if you drive home most of the time, you probably park on or near your street. So I could say, hey, I bet you live on this particular block, and I was right. Um, oh, so yeah. you know, I think I think that that license plate readers can shed some light on what we might expect from facial recognition in the near future. Yeah, for sure. And it would be much more in-depth, of course, because it would be not just when you're in a car, but exactly. wherever you're going for your daily exactly. um, <laughs> your daily rounds. I'm curious about what you're interested in in the future of tech law. Like, what are you kind of following? What are you watching evolve? Like, where is the law kind of struggling to keep up with the technology that's being used? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because so my book is focused on actions of government. And as we were talking about this law here in San Francisco, focuses on what the government can do. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole separate realm about what companies can Mm -hmm. do or should do or actually do. So one example of that is a another company here in San Francisco that's called Ever. Um, And Ever is a company that started out some years ago, creating a very normal, fun, safe photo sharing photo storage app that's called Ever. Uh, It has a very cutesy cursive logo and it's sometimes called Ever Album. The company officially is called Ever Album as one word incorporated. Ever Album went along and was doing their photo app for some time. And then they decided that they, you know, in the words of their CEO in an interview to me, were not getting the returns that they wanted for a venture backed business. And so pivoted to having an entirely 
essentially a separate brand and almost a separate company within the same company that they call Ever AI. So, so if you go to Ever, E-V-E-R dot AI, you will see a company that markets itself towards law enforcement, towards the military, towards national security, towards other companies as saying, hey, we have this facial recognition service that we are selling to other companies. And the story that I did with my colleague Olivia Solon at NBC not too long ago talks about how many people who innocently thought that they were just uploading photos of their friends or their relatives to ever for their own personal storage purposes, and maybe were being used, you know, facial recognition in some, again, seemingly innocent way, like show me pictures of me and my brother or whatever, uh, which I think most people in a limited context don't have a problem with. It's what Google Photos does. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Lots of services do this, but I think many people are concerned, and we spoke with a number of people that were concerned that then the benefits from that technology and research were then being turned to being used for an entirely different purpose. And we spoke with several people who were very concerned about that. So that's a whole nother element of facial recognition and these types of technologies that's being used on the the private sector side. Does that mean that... What we might see, say, in five years is a bunch of shitty companies like this Ever Company, right, saying like, hey, we can just totally do data rape on all of our photos, right? And that's probably not going to be their actual sales pitch. That's just me (laughs) paraphrasing. But they're saying like, basically, like, we can offer you everything, right? We can offer you just complete lack of privacy on these photos. But then it'll be up to um, municipalities or counties to tell their law enforcement organizations they're offering this to you, but you in San Francisco cannot take it. You know, maybe the people uh, over in Fresno will take it. In other words, it'll be regulated at the city level, but the the company won't be regulated. The company won't be told, actually, you can't do that with your data. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. You know, it seems to me that we in this country pretty much okay with how private companies act, right? If you think about Google Street View, when Google Street View came out more than a decade ago, What is Google Street View? It's a private company sending private cars down every single street in America, taking pictures of every single person's home and apartment and workplace and place of worship and all of those things once, twice a year and doing that for years and years and, you know, indefinitely, I guess. Right. And we're like more or less okay with that as a society. Mm -hmm. We're generally speaking less okay with if the CHP tomorrow said, okay, we're going to take pictures of everybody's house just like Google Street View, people would lose their mind, I think. We're generally, it seems to me, more accepting in this country of the actions of private companies and less so of what government does. But I guess my question is, it's one thing for Google Street View to be collecting that information and making it available for Google Street View, which, mm-hmm. I mean, I use all the time, sure. versus Google saying like, oh, well, we also have a special package that we offer to law enforcement or ever doing that, or or right. Amazon, you know, with their AI facial recognition stuff, where right. that, one of their biggest customers is law enforcement. Yep. I guess that's what I'm wondering about is that it sounds like what you're saying is that companies will probably continue to just offer these packages to law enforcement and some law enforcement agencies will be permitted by their local government and other ones won't and it'll be this kind of patchwork of you know you leave san francisco and suddenly (laughs) facial recognition is on the table yeah i think you're right i think it seems to me and my colleague john shupi at nbc did a great story recently about how facial recognition has become kind of the new normal or starting to become the new normal in cities across America. As you say, they're contracting with companies to do various things, Amazon being one of them. 
I do think that that seems to be where we're headed, absent some kind of major federal privacy law, which which many privacy activists have wanted for some time now. We now have a law that's going to go into effect early next year that's called the California Consumer Protection Act that's specifically about online privacy and online kind of behavioral tracking and We and talked about that things in the previous episode. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, we're a so, fan. I'm a fan of that law. So the criticism from many companies, particularly many tech companies in the Bay Area, is they say, look, we don't want, as you say, a patchwork of laws. We don't want a California website and a, you know, Illinois website or whatever. This is one of the things I, you know, I often say like, you know, isn't federalism fun? Like this is one of the things that is interesting about the system that we have in this country where kind of cities and counties are often trying to do their own thing if they think the state is is too slow and the states are also maybe if they think the feds are too slow or aren't going in the direction that they want to go have the ability to pass their own laws in that in that respect there are some movements to try to do a federal privacy law how that would look like what would it take would it cover facial recognition would it just be about online ad tracking or whatever we don't know yet but you're right it seems to me that we're rapidly moving into a world where certain rules apply in one city or county and not in another. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the law in science fiction and mostly Star Trek. Star Trek has had a lot of episodes about the law. I feel like there are two major concerns in a lot of science fiction, both of which turn up in Star Trek when it comes to the law. One is the concern of, you know, individual liberties versus security and, you know, how much liberty are you willing to give up to be secure? And Star Trek has dealt with that a lot. And then even more so, there's the question of who do we consider a person? Who gets personhood? Just as an aside, before I throw this to you, Sarus, I'm just going to point out that when the LAPD was militarizing back in the 50s and 60s, it was sort of becoming more of a military organization and, you know, taking on a lot of those characteristics with like high tech equipment and more heavy duty surveillance and stuff. The person who was in charge of selling that policy to the public was a young police officer named Gene Roddenberry, who wrote speeches for the then LAPD chief, William H. Parker. It's interesting that then Roddenberry went on to create this show that asked all of these questions. What do you think is the main message that we get from Star Trek about those two questions, about liberty versus security and also about personhood? Wow, that's a that's a big question. Um, <laughs> Just sum it uh, up for us. Sure. Uh, 50 <laughs> words or less and then we can get out of here. No. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people forget that Gene Roddenberry, as you say, started off as an LAPD officer. And actually the show that he developed prior to Star Trek, the original series, was a show called The Lieutenant, which featured a young actor by the name of Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was very cognizant of that background, of the law enforcement and you know rule of law type of things. I think in the original series, there's a number of episodes. I'm less familiar with the original series, so I'm going to defer to you guys on that. From the ones I've seen, mm-hmm. I do know that there are a number of kind of legalistic uh, mm-hmm. episodes. Um, There's a bunch. Partly because those are cheap to film. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. We're all going to be right. in a courtroom. We're all going <laughs> to hang out here for a while. Um, <laughs> right. So I grew up on Next Generation. It's interesting because Same. because Next Generation, right, like the opening episode, in part, in large part, 
is a legal court drama, it is a right? Courtroom right? episode, exactly, yeah. right? So Q comes in and essentially is putting humanity on trial, which I have to say is like a hell of a way to open a series in general, <laughs> especially <laughs> with those outfits. I yeah, know. pretty it's insane, pretty campy. Uh, right, that's kind of interesting as a show concept, right? Like we're going to judge the actions of these people, and like is to kind of distort Ali G's original postulation, right? Technology is it good or is it whack, right? Humanity, is it good or is it whack? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what Q is trying to say in that context. And Picard is there to argue, yeah, we've done some bad stuff. We're hardly perfect, but we do our best to learn from our mistakes and to improve ourselves. And I think to me, that's one of the core messages of Star Trek in general is that, yeah, it's hard. It's messy sometimes. It's imperfect, but that we are trying to better ourselves and trying to learn from our past and from other civilizations and other people who do things in a different way. There's a number of of really fun episodes, both in TOS, TNG, DS9, right? I mean, this theme of kind of legal Star Trek continues on. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think in Discovery we've gotten a legal procedural type episode yet. I was trying to think, not really. Really? I mean, we've had discussions about kind of justice, but not, there hasn't been a court procedural. I guess there's like tiny elements of that. Like I'm just thinking like, wasn't Burnham court-martialed she at was. one point. She was okay, court- so court-martialed and she's in prison. That's the right. very first episode. And, right. Yeah, and we have Section 31, right. which is explicitly extra-legal, and right. so we can reverse-engineer right. right. what's legal. Yeah. But yeah, one of the main writers of The Next Generation, the amazing Melinda Snodgrass, actually is an attorney. She has a law degree, and she wrote the episode where Data's put on trial to see if he's a person or not. She put a lot of like her own legal expertise into that episode and some of the other episodes that she did. Whether he should be called Data or Dada. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I exactly. loved how that was what started it, was somebody who refused to give Dr. Pulaski. Dr. Pulaski, who well, was like, also, I can call you whatever I want. It kind of is like the weird precursor to like pronoun debate. It's like yeah. microaggressions. Dr. Pulaski <laughs> is a microaggression. really big on microaggressions. I mean, I know. seriously. Yeah. yeah. Also, like, we have this great clip from Drumhead, which is a Next Generation episode where Picard is kind of talking about he's in court liberty talking about liberty and justice you know there are some words I've known since I was a schoolboy but the first link the chain is forged the first speech censured the first thought forbidden the first freedom denied chains us all irrevocably those words were uttered by Judge Aaron Satie as wisdom and warning. I love Patrick Stewart so much. I love that episode, and I feel like, I mean, it's interesting because it it sets up a lot of issues that we see unfolding in other Star Trek series, too, around, you know, what does it mean to administer justice? When is a courtroom proceeding, like, actually doing what it's setting out to do, which is discover the truth and discover who's actually committed a crime? Um, And in the case of Drumhead, There's this whole thing about basically Star Trek's idea of what racism is, which is speciesism, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, who is actually a Romulan and not a Vulcan? And why did Picard invite a Klingon onto the ship, you know? And, like, there's this whole thing about how Picard is kind of a a race traitor of some kind because he consorts with Klingons. And so I think... I mean, that really gets into that personhood question, too. And I think that idea sort of ping-pongs back and forth. I mean, I think in original series, obviously, the Klingons are the enemy, and so it would be inconceivable that there would be a a member of Starfleet in the Federation, which 
obviously happens from episode one of TNG. Yeah. Again, we get that theme throughout, right? In DS9, I've been rewatching DS9 for the third or fourth time recently. And like the whole like Nog storyline of like the first Ferengi in Starfleet is a really interesting idea because when we're introduced to the Ferengi as a species, they're meant to, I think, be, we're meant to be repulsed by them. They have misogynistic views. They're driven by profit and greed and lust. And that's it. They're very kind of one dimensional in that way. But I think one of the things that Star Trek tries to teach us, or that one of the things that I've learned from watching it is that we can't be limited in our understanding of what people are, what species are, that they're not limited to their programming, essentially. They're not limited to the, you know, six-word description that you get in the in the episode capsule or whatever, right? I mean, it Six-word sounds... description of Ferengi. Yeah, it, but it sounds dumb, but it's like, yeah. you know, like, but I think it's really true that, like, and one of my favorite TNG episodes, this is maybe diverting slightly from the legal framework, there's the episode of I, Borg, where they capture this Borg and the idea that, like, you can rehabilitate a Borg, you can introduce a dangerous idea and we're not going to commit a war crime. We're not going to commit genocide. We're not going to turn this guy into a bomb, essentially. And instead, we're going to infect him with ideas rather than destructive power. Um, yeah, we'll just use social media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll just put a meme in there. Yeah, that's yeah. basically what they did. Yeah, that is basically what they did. But it's a meme that we can believe in because sure. we all know that individualism is great. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? So, yeah. You know, and it's interesting because you were mentioning Melinda Snodgrass, who, as you say, has this background as being an attorney and applied that knowledge uh, and context to the Star Trek episodes that she worked on. It's funny if you go out online, like on Twitter, and you ask attorneys who amongst attorneys are Star Trek fans, like they swarm. Like oh, they, yeah. they, there's like a whole amazing community of people uh, on Twitter who are attorneys. I did the story for ours where I was asking about like the present day legal framework for like the prime directive. And I got an email from a guy who said, I am an attorney in Florida. I think of myself first and foremost as a Starfleet officer. And I was like, that's amazing. Oh um, my God, that's awesome. <laughs> I wish that that would be true in like police departments too. You know, like yeah. I feel like we need more Star Trek fans among police officers. Although I don't know, there may be a lot. There may be. I, yeah, it's a good question. I did a story recently about the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act. And my colleague Dave Ingram and I got to interview the Attorney General of California, Javier Becerra. And I found out that he's a big Star Trek fan. Um, we talked about a little bit about, about TOS and he talked about like, you know, the Klingons and Scotty and like all that stuff. And I know that there's a sitting California Supreme Court justice who's also a Star Trek fan. Like they're out there. So this all kind of makes me wonder because so much of our present day Earth legal framework is built around safeguarding private property and private ownership. And in Star Trek, at least in theory, you don't have those things anymore. So what kind of glimpses does Star Trek give us of a legal system that that isn't centralized, enshrining the, the right of private property? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a Star Trek podcast, if I may plug a different podcast on this podcast. No, There's, not allowed. <laughs> There's a podcast that I love called The Greatest Generation. Their tagline is a, a Star Trek podcast by two guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast, which is a feeling that I identify with sometimes. I would not be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> You're a better person than me, Charlie Jane. But so one of the things that they point out, which I had never really thought about, until they kind of called it out in one of their episodes is that like the doors at least on the Enterprise D don't really seem to have locks like you can just seemingly or they have flimsy locks in a sense and kind of like with respect to private ownership there's a million TNG episodes where somebody can security override access mm -hmm. to somebody else's quarters or whatever mm -hmm. uh, or somehow trick the computer into you know going into somebody else's quarters and I wonder if in that universe 
like you say, where there there is a less of a of an emphasis on private property and private space, most of the show as we see depicted, most of the enterprise as we see it depicted in the show is in public space. It's in the bridge, it's on 10 forward or what we don't have too many episodes that are like centered on people's private quarters. You know, mm-hmm. we know that Riker plays trombone or whatever, and like mm-hmm. um, Data has Spot. Data has Spot, right? And for some reason, Data has like his own little special computer in his quarters that's mm-hmm. never really explained. I think that that's a really interesting idea, where there's this world where people's private spaces may be a bit different, and part of that I think is determined by. I wonder if like if you live in a world where people can transport in and out of spaces all the time, maybe locks don't even matter because mm-hmm. like like you can just be anywhere, right? In DS9, there's a kind of a throwaway line where Cisco talks about how he used to beam home from the academy to his dad's restaurant in New Orleans all the time. Mm-hmm. And like Nog turns up at the restaurant to eat tube grubs with Joseph Cisco, and that you can just do that. I don't really know. It seems like if you live in a universe where Generally speaking, people are taken care of. I think we're sort of meant to believe that in the Federation universe, at least on Earth, people are pretty okay, that they Mm -hmm. seem to be taken care of. And that if you have a profession, if you're in Starfleet, if you're running Cisco's restaurant in New Orleans, you're doing it because you want to, not because like you're being paid gobs of money Mm -hmm. to do that. If that's the universe that you live in, then maybe it doesn't really matter that you have this or that object or this or that property. Yeah, maybe they just have a completely different conception of privacy because we also know that they can be located at any time. Right. You know, mm-hmm. we constantly see that. You right. know, they're just being tracked everywhere. Right. And yeah. I think, like you said, that maybe the way that that works is because there is, at least in the in the places that we see in the Federation, there's not a lot of class division. And so there isn't that sense of, like, I have something to hoard or right. something. and because there's allegedly great rights, you know, everybody has lots of human rights or personhood. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't need to worry about their rights being violated, their privacy being violated, except in all of the cases we see where people's, (laughs) you know, privacy is violated and their rights are are violated. And we see that a lot in Deep Space Nine, I think. And of course Mm -hmm. in Discovery, which is sort of in the prehistory. Right. I feel like there's a number of episodes that deal with like, this land is being taken away from me, right? Like the entire premise of like the Maquis, right? So like the Maquis are this group of people that feel like they got screwed by the Federation who are far away and their land was ceded without their consent, essentially. Mm -hmm. And there's other episodes where people are like, I showed up at this place. There was some rule that I don't agree with or something like that. Or I was ordered to leave by some authority. They feel like there's a DS9 episode about that where Kira has to go like kick a guy off of a moon or something and has to like blow blow up his oven. He has like an oven in his little garden or whatever. (laughs) Do you you remember this? Or like, she she, like put in the position of the oppressor, like going saying like you have to- into that position a lot right and i mean and that is like i said that's a theme of deep space nine which is a post-colonial world right. i mean bajor was occupied by the cardassians mm-hmm. and not the kardashians um and, <laughs> yeah, very different show yeah, different different world that's our world and then they have to figure out how to reclaim that space like right. you said but that's much more about territory and homeland right. and identity right. going back to this question of personhood right, right. versus privacy. Right. It's not about private property, it's about my homeland and right. like what land or what planet or moon do I have a right to occupy right. because it's part of my heritage or it's where I have my oven. <laughs> exactly. Hey, having your oven in a place is pretty important. Sure. I mean sure. that's I get that. I mean pizza, it's good. I, yeah. I, I understand. Yeah. So I mean the hope of Star Trek is that 
as our technology improves, as we get the ability to replicate whatever we want and travel vast distances really quickly and create computers that can think better than humans and so on and so forth, the hope is that we will become better people and that we will actually kind of leave behind some of our shitty behavior that is part of why we need laws now. And so the real question that kind of Star Trek never really answers is like, what do they need laws for in a future where all these limitations that we face? To me, it kind of goes back. There's the old line from, I believe it was James Madison, who said, I think in one of the Federalist Papers, right, if men were angels, no laws would be needed, setting aside the, you know, sexism of that line. But like the sentiment is a good one, which is that like humans, as we have understood them throughout recorded history, throughout time as we understand it, you know, on our planet, we're flawed, right? We've done as a civilization bad stuff uh, Mm -hmm. in our history. And the idea of even having laws is like a somewhat recent, you guys have studied anthropology, I'm sure far better than I have. But but like, you know, it seems to me in my like tiny superficial understanding of it is that you want to have laws to regulate disputes over property to regulate the relationship between citizen and government. And a lot of times those laws are bad. We had a system of laws in this country that legalized a system of human bondage, right? For a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a system of laws that allowed people to be segregated and we're today are dealing with the ramifications of those laws. You know, so laws aren't obviously always inherently good. You know, I think that we hopefully would need laws to try to help us to nudge to get not in the universe of we're going to know where everybody's face has been forever at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether that's the 18th century version, which is why the Fourth Amendment was written to the 21st century version, which is we don't want the government to take pictures of our faces when we're going to buy marijuana at the marijuana dispensary or whatever, Mm -hmm. to maybe a future version where, I don't know, like I imagine a not so distant future where a machine exists that can pick up the hair follicles or skin cells that we shed and record with DNA bulletproof evidence. Yeah, for sure. Sarus was at this recording studio on this day, on this time. And then we know he went and got a burrito after. I don't know if I'm going to get a burrito after this, but you know what I'm saying, right? Because we're or constantly... Or maybe the computer can predict that you're going to get a burrito. Sure, yeah, exactly. Like on, in Minority Report. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Based on like blood pre-burrito. sugar levels. Sure, you know, Because it sampled your right. blood all these other sa- times exactly. when you wanted burritos. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. Tom Cruise is going to be moving his hands around and being like, Sarus is going to get a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. So, so basically what you're saying is that You know, in terms of Star Trek, which is mostly what we're talking about, the human behaviors that we're going to need to regulate are things like refusing to see others as people and also still reverting to this kind of desire to surveil people and restrict individual liberty in the the cause of, of, of security. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, it's interesting that we have depictions in Star Trek of court proceedings or kind of, you know, military mm-hmm. justice court proceeding, court martial type, type situations. We don't have a good sense in Star Trek as it's been depicted so far of what sort of civilian mm-hmm. justice looks like or what civilian right. law enforcement looks like. We have this movement in contemporary kind of criminal justice of like this idea of restorative justice. And mm-hmm. you see that played out in schools and in, and in kind of community kind of settings. I sort of wonder, as I rewatch some of these episodes, I sort of imagine like maybe this is kind of where restorative justice goes, is that like you have this kind of like 
hold hands and do yoga and do therapy and understand the wrong that you've caused to somebody and that like, yeah, we want you to like be punished in a way, but we're not going to send you to Repente. We're just going to like make you sit, read some books for a while and do that and not be a danger to society. But that's one of the things where I think the judicial system, in, as it's depicted in Star Trek, is incomplete, is like mm-hmm. we don't have a good sense of what that means for violent crime or for, you know, something like that. It is interesting that in the mirror universe, the agonizer yeah. is like such yeah. an important piece of right. that. Like the thing that marks it as other. Right. Like, this is obviously not us right. because we would never, we would never do, do that. that with our prisoners. Right. You know? Or we did that in the past, right? We did. Right. We had the stocks and the all, all that, kinds all of, that kind of, you know, torture devices. And as it's shown, particularly in Discovery, they like spend a lot of time depicting that and showing how awful that is. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, where, where can people find your work? People can find my work at NBCNews.com. They can find my endless retweets of Riker Googling at my own Twitter account, <laughs> which is CFARVAR. Uh, I'm on Twitter too much. Thank you, guys. It was, yeah. it was really fun. Yay. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. All right. So you have been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. (laughs) Please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us. You can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And we have a Patreon. So you can give us some gold latinum Mm -hmm. and or Bitcoin or Dogecoin. We we take it all, man. What about Izix? Izix. We take it all, whatever it is. Um, You know, as long as as it can be converted into U.S. dollars, we love it. And thank you so much to Veronica Simonetti here at Women's Audio Mm -hmm. Mission. She's our producer. Women's Audio Mission is the greatest recording studio in the world, pretty much. Um, And I think we can probably prove that. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will hear you or you'll hear us or something like that in two weeks. Yay! Bye! Bye!